We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, everyone. Again, we are um, continuing in our study of the book of Exodus. We study the Old Testament almost always through the summer, and we're sort of entering into a new chapter in kind of the three parts of the book of Exodus. Let's look at our map and we'll catch up to where we are. Remember, the children of Israel left Egypt. They crossed the Sea of Reeds somewhere in that rectangle. Nobody really knows where. Tons of people will sell you like conspiracy things about where it was. We don't, we don't know where it was. Um, um, but we know Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea and they're out, they're free, out of Egypt. But only after about three days, in the wilderness of Shur, which is just kind of out there to the right of, of the rectangle, the wheels start to come off the cart, right? They're already struggling because they can't find any water. And so they go down to this place, Mara. That's where the water was bad, and he had to throw wood in, in the well and make it better. And then they go down to um, Elim, which is where they find this oasis that has 12 big Springs. There's a bunch of palm trees there. It's water enough for everyone. And they can camp there for a while and they're safe, but they can't stay there. They have to go out into the desert again because they're headed for Mount Sinai to meet with God. And it's starting to dawn on them that they're not in Egypt anymore. They're in the desert. And every day in the desert is kind of a life and death sort of a deal. You can't survive anywhere for very long without water and food and some kind of direction, especially in the desert, you need direction, you need a, a plan. And so it's sort of jarring when you read it, how quickly they go from the Song of the Sea, which is like, you know, God's amazing and, and has protected us, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea, to, to what comes off as, you know, whining and complaining about their lack of those necessities, those things that everybody needs, water, food, and some kind of direction. Now, we shouldn't... Um, probably judge them too harshly. I mean, I don't care who you are or where you are. You, you can't go very long without water, you know, maybe three days, which is about when they start grumbling. And you can't go long without food. If you do, that, that's pretty soon that's all you can think about. And so um, that coupled with the desert and no clear plan, it, it's, it's understandable that they might be saying, you know, like, we think this was a huge mistake. Like, we're going to die out here. You know that, right? We, maybe we should just go back. And when you read it, you sort of get the feeling that the children of Israel didn't really want to leave um, Egypt in the first place. A lot of the rabbis actually say this. Like, they would have preferred um, to just better their situation in Egypt and stay without, you know, the abuse and injustice and labor and so leaving was actually God's idea, not their idea. And the reason is because God could see what they sort of couldn't see, which is if they were going to have any kind of future life, they, they had to get out of there. They had to get out of Egypt. And even more than that, they had to somehow get Egypt out of them. And I think that there's a sense in which um, our laughing about their grumbling keeps us from seeing how like we're implicated in this kind of thing too, because this is a really common thing for all of us. All of us end up in situations where we realize we're going to have to leave behind our current life in order to have any kind of a decent future. Like if we stay put where we are much longer, we're just going to wither. But leaving means letting go of the only life that we've ever known. It's incredibly difficult 
to do, to, to kind of leave something that's certain but that doesn't really have a future for something that is uncertain but might have a, a better future. I mean, this, this is very common. We all face this stuff. It's like leaving for college, changing jobs or careers, moving to a new place. There are all kinds of things um, that might happen to us. In, in, um, in rock climbing, I'm not a rock climber, but I like this term. In rock climbing, they have this, this term for it. They call it a crux move. So when you're climbing rocks, as I understand it, you, you, there are footholds and handholds, and very often what they do is you, you get a solid foothold, and then you reach to the next hand and foothold, and you don't let go of the last one until the next one you know can hold your weight, and then you move. But then there are these times when you have to just kind of jump. You have to let go before you have hold of the next thing. It's called a crux move, and it's really, really dangerous. You have to let go of what is certain right here on the rock so that you can have a future. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck there, and, and the climb is, climb is over. Every life involves these crux moves, and it's, it's just incredibly difficult to make ourselves do it. People, rock climbers, tell stories about crux moves where people will sit for hours trying to get the nerve to go. And that's where the children of Israel sort of find themselves um, in the first few weeks of the wilderness. The only way forward they know is to have just a little bit of faith. But I mean, we should maybe interrogate that idea a little bit, a little bit of faith. Well, who are they supposed to have faith in? Themselves? Each other? They've been slaves for a long time. Faith in God? They, they, don't, they know nothing about this God, really. They, they have very little history with Yahweh. I mean, it's, they've seen some miraculous things. There's the, the plagues, the miracle at the sea, but that's maybe, what, six, eight months versus, you know, 400 years of trusting Egypt and Pharaoh to keep them alive. So you, you can kind of see the problem. Their daily life for like 400 years has taught the, the children of Israel to trust in Egypt. And it really hasn't taught them much of anything about Yahweh because Egypt had everything that they could need. They, and, and it had it first and foremost because of the Nile River. The philosopher Herodotus in the 6th century BC wrote that Egypt was the gift of the Nile. It, um, the Nile gave Egypt to, to the world because it's the, it's the source of its whole prosperity. If you look at a, like a satellite photo of the surrounding region, you realize if it weren't for the Nile, Egypt would be known as the Sahara Desert. Like the Nile is it. It's everything for them. It's like 4,000 miles long. One of the, it and the Amazon are the two longest rivers in the world. It was deep and more than anything, it was dependable. Every summer, the Nile would overflow its banks and, and then recede and leave behind this rich, fertile soil. And it was perfect for farming and irrigation. And so they, they became the breadbasket of the ancient world, all because of the Nile River. And they kind of encoded this in their religion. So you've heard of Isis and Osiris, the, the gods, two of the main gods um, in Egypt. Osiris was the god of agriculture in this life and the God of resurrection in the next life. And their belief was that the Nile River was the bloodstream of Osiris. And so even in Egyptian religion, prosperity in this life, resurrection in the next life, it all depended on the Nile, on Osiris's bloodstream. If you think about just our own history as a nation in, in the US, the growth of the frontier, like the settling of America, 
bounced from river to river to river. It started like around the Charles River in New England. And then during that time, the frontier, the edge, was the Connecticut River. That's the one that cuts through, I can never remember, it's Vermont and New Hampshire, right? I never know which one is which, but it goes, it's the one that goes through, through, through them. That's the, that was the edge of the world, the new world for them. And then they settled that river and then it moved over to the Hudson and they settled that one and went to the Delaware and then the Susquehanna, the P Potomac. Then they hit the Ohio and that sent them straight left. And then, then, it, was the, then it was the Mississippi for a long time running north and south, cutting the nation almost in half was, was the frontier. And then they started to go up the Missouri, that's Lewis and Clark. That's how they went to the west, the Platte. The Arkansas, there were all these movie, uh, or things they could go, go west on. The Oregon Trail, Santa Fe Trail, these, a lot of the little trails, they followed rivers. I mean, this is how people survived in, in, in strange places, as they followed ri rivers. To this day, almost every major city in the U.S. that's not on a coast is on a river. It's like Kansas City. It's, it's here. We're here because of rivers the Missouri, the Kansas rivers. And the Nile is one of the greatest. It's one of the greatest in the world, and it never let Egypt down. There's this um, Hebrew scholar, Yale Ziegler. I, I love her. She's hilarious and really smart. She says that the problem with this is a land of rivers is a land that easily forgets its debts to God, its debt to God, which is pretty much what Egypt does. And and so the, the Egyptians, they had great faith in the Nile. And the Hebrew people living there for so long in this land of ri rivers, they began to put their faith in the Nile as well. And so early on in the wilderness, when there was no water, their first thought was, we could go back to the Nile, man. It would be great. That thing never lets us down. And so the Nile is kind of this symbol. Alongside the, the pyramid, the Nile is a symbol of Egypt, of, of the life and vitality and stability of that empire. Out, out in the desert, they also needed food in the wilderness. And they remembered that Egypt was a, a place of plentiful food, right? It's the breadbasket of the ancient world. I mean, the, the entire Roman Empire was dependent on Egyptian grain. And, and the symbol of this would be um, Egyptian bread. We don't know exactly if the Egyptians invented bread making, but they were one of the first, and there's good evidence that they had, but we know um, they certainly discovered leaven and began using that. They pioneered that whole idea in bread making and in the making of beer. Can I get an amen? And when they, and so they, they just kind of combined the two, like the, the bread making and the beer making was all together because they used the same process and materials. And, and bread and beer, these were the staples of the Egyptian diet. This is how they survived. They also, it might be that it lowered the life expectancy because they, um, they had so much, there, there was grain and sand in, in the bread and it wore their teeth down and they would get infections and die, which is, does it, that, that has nothing to do with anything else. I just read it and I thought it was interesting. Um, but bread also became a symbol of Egyptian ingenuity and identity. Remember Potiphar put Joseph in charge of everything in his house except for one thing. Remember what it was? It was the bread making. He kept that because that this was part of their identity. So these symbols, the Nile, the Egyptian bread, um, these went right alongside things like the, the Pharaoh and the pyramid as symbols of 
Egypt's strength and kind of this natural prosperity. Yale Ziegler again, she says, a society where prosperity comes easily is one that easily turns people into arrogant, self-dependent people who feel that they are autonomously existing. That, that's Egypt. They, they had so much faith in their own ability and it's symbolized by, by the Nile. Faith in their own ingenuity, symbolized by bread. Faith in their own destiny, sort of um, greatness, symbolized by Pharaoh and the, and the pyramids. And so if you think about it, this is, this is water. This is food. This is direction. This is everything that you need to survive in the wilderness. And really for 400 years, the Hebrew people had been conditioned to have faith in, in Egypt. And they had very little invested in cultivating faith in, in Yahweh. They didn't even know how to do it. So this is all very new for them when they head out in, into the wilderness. Um, one of the Old Testament scholars I love, Walter Brueggemann, he has a name for this. He calls it a, um, a totalism. It's, it, it, the, my spell check doesn't catch that as a real word, so I don't know if he made it up, but this is, this is the word he uses a lot. It's a totalism. It's, it's this complex web of self-contained and intertwined systems that we have created within our societies that provide everything that we need. It's food, housing, water, sewers, um, waste disposal, public works, systems of economics and, and politics, education, law, justice, philosophy, knowledge, science, industry, everything that we need for our lives is, is contained within some system and put together, it's, it's a totalism. It's so comprehensive that any important thing outside of that system is unimaginable to us. That's why it's called a totalism. The totality of life is contained within these intertwined systems and all you gotta do is trust the system and support and defend the system and you'll be fine. Well, the children of Israel had been really conditioned by the totalism of Egypt and to the point where they just could not imagine life on their own. And they, they get out in the wilderness and they're, they're losing it right away. Now, here's the thing. I think that um, all of us live within a totalism that is strikingly similar to that of Egypt. We, we live within the American totalism. And it's an empire, every bit as powerful and prosperous as Egypt. We, we live in a land of many rivers, right? And it does the same thing to us it did to them. We have systems for everything, for food and housing and water and economics and politics and justice and science and industry. And, and these things give us everything that we need. And we've trusted in the American totalism for so long that we really can't imagine life apart from those systems. And yet, we live in a time when I think most of us have this sense that those systems are beginning to fail. They're breaking down in many ways. I mean, everything's fine, nobody's starving, um, nobody's dying of thirst, but as a society, we seem to be coming to the realization that if we're gonna have some kind of a good future, then we're gonna have to change some things. And I don't mean just like personal attitudes and actions. We're gonna have to change some of the systems that we rely on. And there's just a, a growing sense that the, the totalism as it currently functions, it, it can't provide us with a stable 
future. Let me, let me give some examples, see what you think. Our, our systems, for instance, of production and consumption that drive our economy. Here's this one stat I always think of. America has 5% of the world's population and we use 25% of the world's resources. Like, because of this, we're generating so much waste. Chemicals polluting our soil and our groundwater, carbon um, released into the atmosphere, warming the earth. And, and there's this growing realization that this kind of wastefulness, it can't continue. But the American totalism, it was, it was built to just kind of exploit the, the environment, natural resources, so that we can grow, 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 rather than to steward the resources and revere them um, on, on God's terms, the terms that God set for the use of the world. Think about our economic systems. They're, they exploit cheap labor. That's how all empires work. And then they move wealth from the bottom to the top, and those at the bottom are, are then told that they're a burden on the system, just like Pharaoh did. Our justice system exploits people of color, right? And treats often the uber wealthy as though they're above the law, like they are treated differently by the law. We, we're going to have to change this. can't continue. The political system now is so easily corrupted by wealth, corporate money. Our social systems have us divided into these, you know, bitterly divided and hateful tribal factions. But still, almost everything we need to live is, is contained within the American totalism. But there is still this growing, this kind of nagging sense that things can't continue the way they are. There's actually kind of a growing consensus in, in this over the last eight to 10 years among those very different factions, you know, and philosophies and groups about the only thing they can all agree on is something needs to change. Like what needs to change? No agreement whatsoever, but that there should be change. That if we stay where we are, our future is going to be tough. We need to change our systems, right? If we want a future. The problem is the American totalism it's just the only life we've ever known. And so it's impossible to imagine a life outside the totalism. And eventually, we'll have to come to a crux move, right? A leap of faith from a life that's certain but doesn't seem to have the future that we hope for to a life that is much more uncertain but maybe has a better future. I mean, can you see the similarities there? So much between these their life and, and, and our life. And I hate to say it, but I'm your pastor and I promise to tell you the truth about things like this, especially. When societies fail, when they face calamity, it's almost always because the powerful and the religiously committed people refuse to change. Over and over in scripture, we see this. When Israel meets calamity and exile, God blames they're the powerful leaders and they're religious leaders for their materialistic idolatry, their exploitation of the poor, of the earth, and for their resistance to change, right? And so, so you look at it this way and you're like, well, okay, what do we do? How, how's God going to move us forward? Well, the Exodus narrative really points the way 
And this is a long, long tradition in the Jewish faith and the Christian faith of looking to the Exodus narrative in these moments. In fact, over centuries, many Jewish and Christian theologians have discerned a pattern in the Exodus that just repeats itself over and over in the scriptures and then in all of life, down through history. And the pattern sort of begins with a certain orientation that, that ends up being called an old orientation, a settled way of life, some kind of totalism that works. It gives every, everything people need to survive. And, and it works for usually a long time, but then it starts to no, stop working, usually because its, its strength becomes its weakness. And eventually people begin to, to realize, like, this old orientation, is there's no future in it, not long term. And so they need to change from that old orientation to a new orientation, a new way of organizing their common life that will be hopefully less exploitative or idolatrous, that will be more just, more sustainable and good. But the problem is people are so captivated by that old orientation that hardly anybody can imagine a new way of life, a new orientation. It's actually usually only like the artists, the poets, the, the prophets, the filmmakers, those kind of people that, who can imagine some kind of new orientation. And the problem is the political leaders, the religious leaders resist any kind of change and they silence the artists and the poets and they kill the prophets. But sometimes God enters into this, this kind of deadlock. And, and this is Moses, by the way, at the burning bush. I think this is little ragamuffin churches like Redemption Church all over the world. And in order to, to move God's people and the totalism of the culture from an old to a new orientation, God forces upon them a season of disorientation. That's the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, their systems don't work anymore. And they kind of lose everything they used to count on. You know, physical strength and Religious orthodoxy and your ability to, you know, suck up to Pharaoh. Those things are worthless out there in the desert. Those systems don't get you food and water in the sand. And so it's there in the wilderness of Sinai that God begins to open the children of Israel up to a new orientation for their lives. Because for so long they had trusted in the Nile and the bread of Egypt and, and the, the Pharaoh and all of his power and they didn't really know how to trust in God. They had lived as slaves so long, they didn't know how to be free. They couldn't even find food and water. They couldn't fend for themselves. They had no direction, no sense of purpose. It's often why it's called the wilderness wanderings. They're just wandering around in this season of deep disorientation. And this is not a mistake. God has led them. This is on purpose. God led them to a place where everything they used to be able to count on um, doesn't work anymore. The systems just are no good. And, and then the real question for them becomes, and this is what they're grumbling about and what they're, you know, trying to put voice to. Your question is, how will God sustain them in the wilderness through their season of disorientation? And the answer is interesting as we read earlier, um, Reese read for us earlier in our text for today, the answer comes in the form of those very basic things that they need while they're in the wilderness. The answer comes in the form of water and food and direction. 
If you read the book of Numbers, you know, um, Torah re retells the story again, some of it in Numbers, some of it in, a lot of it in Deuteronomy. Numbers goes through kind of the history of where they, where all they camped during their 40 years in the wilderness. And if you study it, what you see is really what they did the whole time is this move from water to water, from oasis to a oasis or well to well. They moved around to find water. And sometimes they had to fight and defend their position. If they were strong, they could stay. If they weren't strong at the time, then they had to move on and find another place with water. And in chapter 17, the chapter right after what Reese read for us, they're wandering around the wilderness. Again, they have, they've left the, the springs of Elam. They're headed towards Sinai, and they're just, they're just complaining. Why did you bring us out of Egypt, they say, to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? And, and then it says, we're told, the Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Horeb is, is Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. Um, the language there, it's interesting, of stand on the rock. That's a, that is, um, they think, is a reference to a trial, ancient trials. They would stand you up on a rock and then interrogate you. That's how they did that. That's sort of how their legal system worked. And so this is an allusion to an ancient trial here. God says, put me on the rock, put me on trial, and, and see if I will not be faithful and come through for you. So, so Moses does this. He strikes the rock, and water flows and they're saved, right? And so, so the answer to how will God sustain us in, in the wilderness when our systems fail comes here in the form of water. And, and over time, it's kept happening. Over time, um, there in the wilderness, they began to trust that, that God would always provide water. They also needed food. So each morning, there was this layer of dew on, on the sand, and it would dry and evaporate into like little flaky, I don't know, sounds like cornflakes to me, only they were white. And they called it man-ah. Um, like what, man is what, ah, remember hoshana now? It's like, it basically means what now? That's what manna is, that's what manna means. They're like, what now? That's, that's what it means. But there was, it was always there every morning. There was just, just enough to get them through the day. They couldn't save it up, and they had to just trust that it would be there again tomorrow. Then they got tired of manna, so they're grumbling about that. They're like, we need some meat. We used to sit around these big old pots of stew in Egypt. Like, what's the, where's our stew? And so God sends these millions of quail into the camp, and they, they kill them and eat them. And slowly they began to trust that God could always provide food for them, even in the desert. And finally, they needed direction, right? That's water and food direction. And this is, of course, the, the pillar of cloud that led them in the day, and, and then that night, like, lit up and popped and sizzled, sizzled with God's presence. And, th and this guided them for 40 years. So they had direction. And this whole generation of time in the wilderness that they no longer um, thought about the Nile and the bread of Egypt and the, the direction of Pharaoh because they had their own thing going. They, they knew God after a while. They knew God could do it. It's fine, we'll, we'll find water. We'll have food. We have direction. And they left Egypt as, as slaves, grumbling and complaining. I mean, just whinging in the wilderness. And 40 years later, they arrive at the promised land, 
hardened survivors, right? They're ready to do battle, and they're ready to do battle if necessary with nothing but trumpets. That's their, the battle of Jericho. They don't use swords, right? I mean, they, are, they know faith in Yahweh at this point. This happened in the wilderness. And so now, if you flip that story around to our situation, um, it's helpful because it, it seems like, you know, we, we are in a season of disorientation. And it's possible that God is engineering this on purpose. And not to punish us like, I don't know, I can't remember the dude on the 700 Club. He's always saying God's punishing us for something. It's not like that. It, it's a, a kind of grace. When God shoves us into disorientation, we can meet it as grace. God's leading us to, toward a new orientation, a, a hopeful future, right? Into a season of disorientation that just might save us from calamity. And so the, the question for us is, here in our own wilderness, how will God sustain us during this season? Like, we get, what's, what's our version of manna and quail and whatever? And as Christians, we believe that the answer is found not just in the story of the Exodus, um, although it is, it, it, the story keeps going. Um, it's found in the story of Christ, which is told in a very Exodus-y kind of fashion. It parallels the story of Exodus in many ways. In, in John chapter um, 6, uh, Jesus had just found out John the Baptist had been killed, right? And he's upset. He wants to go be alone. Herod has killed his cousin. The pressure's on him now. And so he goes from, um, if you picture the Sea of Galilee, he goes from, from the villages where they were across the sea to the other side, and there's mountains over there, the Golan Heights. And, he, and this is Gentile territory. This is technically the desert, the wilderness. So he goes into the wilderness, and he, and he climbs a mountain, which should make us think of Mount Sinai. And then he, he goes up on the mountain, but then the people follow him, and they're clamoring for food. They want to be fed. And so he, um, this would make us think of the children of Israel clamoring for food. So he feeds them miraculously with the loaves and the fish that, that feed everyone. And there's stuff left over even, which should make us think of the manna and the quail in the wilderness. It's both bread and it's not, it's not quail, it's, it's fish this time, but they're on a fishing lake, right? And, and, and then Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. His disciples get in their boat and they sail back over to the other side. He stays up there to pray. When he comes down, he's like, I don't, I don't want to be bothered by all these people. So he walks across the water. He crosses the sea. He's reenacting the crossing of the Red Sea there. And then he gets over to the side, and what are the people doing after this miracle? Grumbling. They're grumbling. They're asking for something to eat. And, and Jesus then just talks straight up about Moses. He says, um, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. And they all go, well, give us this bread, like, like Moses did back then. And in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread. I am, remember, this is what God says to Moses at the burning bush, I am. So there's a connection there, but also I am the bread, the manna. He says, whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so he's claiming to be in a fuller way that like the fulfillment of the manna from the heaven, the quail, the water from, from the rock. He's, in some sense, um, the daily sustenance um, for his people while they wander in the wilderness. 
Next chapter, John 30, um, 7, 37, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let anyone who believes in me drink. For out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is, is, is this river, this source of life that somehow gets internalized to us. He can be for us a river of living water and also just walks around with us wherever we go and, and sustains us. Later in Jerusalem, they'll, they'll put him on trial like, like God, they put God on trial at Mount Sinai and they'll execute him. And when they strike Jesus, the rock of our salvation, when they strike him in the side with the spear, what flows out? Water and blood. They're just retelling the story. And so in John, Jesus is just reenacting the Exodus. And it's like he's saying, I, I, can, I can be for you the bread of life. I'll be the living water, the spirit of God's presence, constantly with you, keeping you alive on your trek through the wilderness. He's offering his own body, his own life to sustain us. In, in one sense, through communion. This is why, part of why we do this every week. It's connected to that Exodus story. But in a larger sense, just through our participation in in the body of Christ. God's plan for how to sustain us when he's got to lead us into seasons of disorientation so that we can have a future is, is through Christ. And so the hardest part for us is, is to find the strength not to just turn back to our modern day Egypt, to the American totalism that promises to meet every need, but which is obviously unsustainable and is breaking down. We're asked to, to turn to Christ instead and, instead, and not as like this one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing. This is meant to be kind of sustaining us daily in our, our habits and rhythms and practices. And so as we participate in the, in the life of Redemption Church, that's why we talk so much about habits and rhythms and practices of our normal everyday life. And, and I, I kind of have them... They, they make sense to me in pairs, most of them, things like Sabbath and tithing that sort of undermine our economy and our busyness and, and weekly worship and daily prayer, these, these connections that undermine our, our kind of trust in, in the totalism. There's, there's community and solitude. There's becoming paired with the outcasts. The, these, are, um, these, these things exist outside the totalism. Let me say them again. Sabbath and tithing, they make no sense. They're absurd inside the totalism. Weekly worship, daily prayer, they're, they're absurd if, if you're captured by the totalism. They exist outside that. The, the rhythms of community and of silence and solitude, um, especially becoming paired with, with the outcasts and those on the margins. These things exist outside the totalism. And so when we learn to draw our life from those things, we're building the capacity for a whole new imagination, a whole new orientation. And so there's this, this thing set up. Where are we drawing our life from? Egypt, the, the American totalism, or from this whole strange set of practices that are connected to the body of Christ, that connect us to the body of Christ. They become to us like manna in the wilderness, like springs of water that sustain us while God builds this new imagination in us. And it can really be a new imagination, a new orientation for us, but not just us, 
for the world, for the life of the world. This is why we exist. We're blessed not to get, condemn the world, to be a blessing to the world, to be the people who have been drawing their strength from somewhere else besides denial and the totalisms. And so when God sends us out in, into the wilderness, we, we sort of have this choice. I mean, we can die in the wilderness. We can just go back to Egypt, to the totalisms. Or we can turn to Christ to sustain us. And this is really what it means to, to be a Christian, to decide, okay, I'm going to draw my life from a completely different source. And this is what I think and where I'll leave us. I really think if, if our society has a future, it's in, in rooted in little ragamuffin churches. And I mean little. It's almost always going to be something small. Who, who will draw their life from a different source. The world depends upon us. Otherwise, it's just going to be the totalism and we'll ride it all the way into the sea like Pharaoh's army. And it's only going to be people who are willing to go into the wilderness and then to draw their life from a different source. They, they will be how something new comes about. And so what I'm saying is your life really matters. What you do tomorrow really matters. What you do this week and next week is who you are, is your life, is what you're becoming. It matters, not just to you, to, to all the world, especially in this season of disorientation. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to be part of um, your people, your priestly people, like a holy nation, meeting your presence to God, mediating your presence, God, to the world. And as we think about our society, which can just be so frustrating and feel so, I don't know, so stuck, I wonder, God, if you could lead us toward water and food and direction that we could find it in these old, old rhythms of faith. We do pray for our world. We're in such a mess, and yet everywhere we look, if we zoom in close, there's such beauty and goodness and heart and love. We're just swallowed up by this totalism and, and we need your help to get out. And so best we can as a, as a people and as, as persons, God, we give ourselves over to you. Help us to live um, in the wilderness with this deep connection to Christ who is our, our sustenance, who is the living water. Amen. would invite you guys to stand, and we're going to receive communion, which is, you know, really connected to the story that we just told. Um, communion straight comes from the Passover and from this idea of manna. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he'd given thanks, by the way, that word is connected to the Exodus story, the same phrase, after they had given thanks. After he had given thanks, he broke it and passed it out as 
to his people and said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup in the same way, gave thanks, passed it around, said, this um, cup is a new covenant, a new deal in my blood. He said, every time you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, tell this story again, take my life into your life and remember who you are and then go out into the world and be salt and light. Let the world feast on you and come to be part of this new kingdom. And this is why we do this. This is why we receive communion. And we invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ um, to join us. The way we do it, we just come forward row by row and it'll be offered um, this nice little shrink-wrapped, lame um, communion stuff, which is what we're doing because of COVID. Usually we would have bread and, um, and you'll be offered that and they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or say, I will remember back. But let's pray for the communion elements. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and the cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness, your faithfulness to us. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?